So we're breaking in some new people back there. And uh, doing a good job so far back there, by the way. <laughs> I was here for part of the uh, an, uh, orientation, and i got to say, um, I'm glad I'm up here. <laughs> so, and so are you, by the way. So you're, uh, I'm not good with technology. I have a hard time handling the remote, and uh, the amount of equipment back there is startling. Uh, we're not going to do much by way of introduction. Our introduction, we've gone through two messages um, and looking at Daniel chapter 11. So we're just going to open straight up uh, and, and just kind of recap where we're at at this point in time before we dig into to the final part of this chapter. In Daniel 11, we um, began with this, uh, this rise of the, the Greek power, uh, and it led into... Uh, last week, talking about this guy, Antiochus IV. We talked about him a few chapters ago. And, uh, and we see this guy just doing whatever he wants, kind of like his, like his dad did, Antiochus III, just trampling over. And, and we've seen how things started. We, we mentioned how things start way out here and how it's kind of getting close to the Jews. And, and, and people are trying to insert their own plans and do their own things, and God every time says, yeah, when I, when I say it's over, it's over. You're not going to extend it. You're not going to speed it up. Uh, whatever I have decreed is going to happen, and we're going to notice that this week as we talk about the fall of Antiochus IV. And I want to remember, this is not just because God likes to give history lessons. God is just a history teacher who likes to talk about history, you know, and then... Uh, but this is because these were things that affected God's people. The, all these things were, were going on right around and, and including his people. And he's like, here's some warnings for things that are going to influence you. And he does that, I believe, uh, even uh, in the New Testament, he does that for us as well. Uh, but Daniel chapter 11, and we're going to begin in verse 29 and read through the, the end of the chapter. It says, at the appointed time... He shall return. So now he's, again, he's picking up where we've left off. Uh, Antiochus has had a, a pretty good run of it so far. And so he's gone back with some spoils. That's kind of what happened uh, after he went back and damaged the Holy Lands, the, what's called the glorious land here. Uh, so at the appointed time, he's going to return and go south. But it will not be like the former or the latter times. For ships from Cyprus, yours might say, Kittim, uh, shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And forces shall be gathered by him and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Those who do wickedly against the covenant shall be corrupt uh, with flattery. But the people who know their God will be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame and captivity and plundering. And when they fall, they will be aided by a little help. But many shall join them because of intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them and purify them and make them white. Until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. And then the king shall do accordingly to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak blasphemies 
against the God of gods and shall prosper until the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined to be done. He will regard neither God of his fathers nor the desire of women nor the regard of God of any God, but he will exalt himself above all of them. In their place he shall honor a God of fortresses and a God which his, father, his fathers didn't know. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things, and so he will act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he will acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. And at the end of the king of the south shall come and attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and many ships, and he shall enter countries, overwhelm them, pass through. He will enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and Ammon. And he shall stretch out his hand against countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. Uh, he will have power over the treasures of gold and silver, over the precious things of Egypt. Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow his heels, but the news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. He will plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountains, yet he shall come to his end with no one to help him. So you get that flavor a little bit that, that this guy thinks he's going to do it all, but God's going to say, not so fast. I've determined an end for this. And so we're going to talk about the fall of Antiochus, and it certainly doesn't sound like this uh, is going to happen, but as we read some of the things that he's going to do, but we're going to go through this and this is going to make sense. Uh, and as always, we're going to go through the history and then we're going to try to apply it uh, to something that, that we understand for us even 2000, more than 2,000 years later. So Antiochus uh, is interesting. It says, at the appointed time he will return and go towards the south, but it will not be like the former or the latter. It's interesting that, that Antiochus has no idea uh, that there's something else guiding events. Now, I don't think God was forcing him to make decisions that he was doing. Uh, these things that he was doing were sins. Um, and, and I don't... Well, a lot of times we chalk things up to, uh, well, this is God's will and, and God is doing this. And we've talked a lot about God's will. I don't believe God predestines sin to happen. Uh, that is, uh, we talk about, well, this happened for a reason, and that happened for a reason, and, and this suffering is for a reason. And, and well, we get into that a lot of times, and a lot of times the reason that the suffering occurs is because of sinful decisions we've made. And, and that's, that's, God doesn't predestine sin to happen. And, and God doesn't predestine uh, Antiochus to go south and try to murder people. Uh, what God does is, there's a person there, and he's saying, uh, I've got a point in time, I'm going to let this happen at this point, or, or I'm not going to allow it yet, uh, because there's something I'm trying to accomplish. And so it says at the appointed time. What is appointed is not what Antiochus was going to do, but when he was going to do it. Uh, the, uh, God is guiding the time frame, in other words. But he says... He's going to go south, but it's not like it was going to be at the beginning or, or the later one. Remember, he's gone south into Egypt several times. Uh, and in and, and both of those, he went down to Memphis, and then he went down to uh, Pelusium, and, and he had great success. But it says, it's not going to be like either one of those times. He's going to have some problems because uh, here it says uh, ships will come from Cyprus. We're going to be a little bit more clear on that. If, if you have a, a version that says ships will come from Kittim, 
um, that's going to be more accurate. Um, now, here's why it's translated as Cyprus in some Bibles, because on the bottom of, of Cyprus, there's a, uh, a coast called Kitten, K-I-T-T-O-N. However, Kittim is a plural word. Uh, it's the same word, only plural. And what happened, Cyprus is the big island in the Mediterranean right there. And Kittim became a word that was used just in general for multiple uh, islands in the Mediterranean. Now, Cyprus had already been brought, we talked about Cyprus being divided up by his, by his father in an agreement with Macedonia. Uh, this, this had taken, 20, taken place 20 years earlier. Um, however, Rome governs a lot of these Mediterranean ship, uh, islands. Remember, we, we talked about that last week when, when, he, when Antiochus went to, um, uh, his, I believe his father went to uh, the coasts, went to uh, the, the one island and, uh, of Rhodes and didn't have so much success there. Well, uh, so Rome sent some ships down to the mouth of the Nile River and uh, the ambassador meets Antiochus and says, "You're going to withdraw from." And remember what he there's the one thing that he hasn't gotten. The one thing Antiochus wants is Alexandria. That is the crown jewel of the Nile to this point. Or that that is that is what everybody wanted in Egypt. That is the center of culture and wealth. Uh, he had some fortresses, but he didn't have Alexandria. This is like the New York City of, of Egypt, and he wants that. That, to him, is the key to getting back at Rome. And so, so he's there, and Rome knows that. So now they're heavily invested. So they send ships down and, and block him off, and kind of corner him off. Uh, and, and so there's fortresses of, of Alexandria, and then there's these ships at the mouth of the Nile. And they send the ambassador to Antiochus. Now we have to remember who Antiochus is. He's the guy with the, the sneaky treaties. And he, he always makes a treaty and breaks them. That's what he does. And, and so the ambassador knows this. And he says, I need you to withdraw. And, and Antiochus says, well, you know what I'm going to do? Why don't I think about it? Just I'll go think about it. Uh, and, and I'll get back to you. And he says, uh, the ambassador takes a sword and he draws a circle around Antiochus. He says, why don't you give me your answer before you step outside of that circle? Because if you do, uh, if you step outside of that circle without giving me an answer, that's the answer. He knows who he is. <laughs> I know who you are, but your, your tricks are kind of old at this point in time. And so ah, this guy is so close to what he wants. I don't know if you've ever been so close to what you want and you can't quite get there, but that's Antiochus. Uh, he wants to get there, and oh, it's just, he can taste it. And he has to go back. Well, he goes back angry. Now, something has happened uh, also in, in this point in time. He's been down there for a while, and rumor got out that, uh, that he was dead. Some people thought that he was dead, because he certainly wasn't having any success in Alexandria, and so uh, we're going to start talking about the Maccabees here. It gets into this, uh, if you're familiar with them, or at least familiar with their name. But uh, the guy who is the rightful high priest has been uh, taken off of that. Uh, he should be the high priest. 
a guy by the name of Jason and a guy by the name of Menelaus has bribed Antiochus IV. We talked about that a long time ago. And uh, so, he, so thinking that this guy is dead, he leads a, a revolt. This is the precursor to the Maccabean revolt. And uh, that news gets back to Antiochus, who's getting ready to depart. And so be, between his humiliation at the hands of the Romans and, and this news that, that the guy that bribed him is being you know, has been kind of temporarily booted off of his high priest seat. He comes to Jerusalem with a vengeance, and he leads an assault. It says that uh, he will return and, and show regard for those, uh, or back up to verse 30 says, um, that he's going to return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. And he'll return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And that's important. Um, and and uh, he, he basically bribes people. And this has been done throughout, throughout history. Listen, if you, if you help us against these people of God, you can have some of the stuff that they own. Whatever you get... You know, if you if you turn them in, you get their stuff, and that, that's been done time and time again um, to help turn people against other people. And so he is showing regard for those who forsake the covenant. Now, in the end, he'll kill both of them because he's that kind of guy. But he takes action against the holy covenant. This begins in 168 BC. Uh, he is against the temple and against the people. And we see that in, in, this, in this passage. He profanes the temple. He's a Gentile. He enters the holy place and starts stealing stuff from it. Lots and lots of stuff because, I mean, whatever was left that he hadn't stolen before, he steals now. There's nothing of any value when he leaves this time. He takes away the regular burnt offering. In fact, all religious services are officially ended. You can't go to church. All Jewish rites, sacrifices, everything important to the Jews is ended. And he sets up what's called the abomination of desolation. That is a a, a statue of Zeus, which he places in the Holy of Holies. The, the Ark of the Covenant, if it was there, is already taken, I believe already taken. Uh, if not, it was by this time, uh, after this. And that happens December 15th, 168. And he offers on an altar there pig's blood and defiles the temple again. He's against the people. Uh, he murders thousands and thousands. And he's against the city. He burns homes, burns buildings, whatever. He just... This, this is a, a city in complete destruction. And he takes thousands as slaves. And this leads to what we call the Maccabean Revolt. It's kind of interesting, the reference to the covenant, because a guy by the name of Mattathias, who is the father of what we call the Maccabees, uh, Mattathias Ben-Johanan, he leads and gets together a group of people who are very angry at what's happened to the temple. And their cry is recorded by history as they go out to meet 
the Greeks meet a Greek army is, he says, those who are for the covenant with me. And it's interesting that that's the way that the Bible rephrases this, is that people were against the covenant. Because that's what the cry was from the Jews about the covenant. And that is going to be very, very important as we conclude later. He says, the people who know their God shall stand firm, and they will do many great exploits. And this is the period of the Maccabees. If you want to read a great history about this time period, uh, the book of First and Second Maccabees, uh, it's, if you have a Catholic Bible, or if you've been, been around one, that you'll find it in there. It's, I don't believe it's uh, books of the Bible, but they are a great history of this period, and they do many great exploits. Uh, the oldest son of Mattathias is named Judas Maccabeus. He's the one for who we get the, the name Maccabees because he's the, the greatest of the, the five sons. And, and he's the one who will actually restore the temple about three years later and purify it. And from that we get the celebration of Hanukkah uh, today, the Festival of Lights. And, uh, but he, he, he talks about how they're going to die. These, these, these people are going to stand firm for a while, but they're going to start to fall. And, and through that, they're going to be purified, which is interesting. Uh, all five of these sons will die at some point. Uh, or I should say, not just die, they'll be, they'll be killed during these great exploits. And it says that some days they will stumble by sword and flame and captivity and plunder. It is uh, the younger, a younger brother of Judas Maccabeus, interestingly enough. Down the line, he'll have a great-great-great-granddaughter who will marry a guy by the name of Herod the Great <laughs> and restore the temple, build a, uh, the temple, rebuild a temple that's been burned. He's not such a great guy. But it's kind of interesting how history is all intertwined here. And it says that the Maccabees would get some assistance and they did. They did get some assistance, sometimes from people who had, there's that group of people we've seen throughout time, they, they looked for the ones who seemed to be winning, and uh, at first, they looked like they were losing, so there's people not really interested in that. They're interested in, in what Antiochus has, to got, uh, has got to offer them. But there was, early on, a group of people that helped them. They're called the Hasidians. They will be the predecessors for what will be called the Pharisees later. We know them today as Hasidic Jews. If you've ever seen, uh, you've ever been on an airplane going somewhere and seen a big group of Jewish people and they have the, the long spirals, those are Hasidic Jews. These are kind of a long, long line of, of this group of people that helps the Maccabees, the Hasidians. And they make an alliance and, and things start to turn in their favor. And at this point, some people like put the finger in the air and say, oh, it looks like it's going against the Greeks. Maybe this is our chance. And so they start to jump over and it's that they call by intrigue. They do this by intrigue. By flattery. But it says that they stumble and they are refined until the end. The temple sacrifices are restored in 165 B.C. and yet a lot of these people died. And we think of uh, the suffering of people uh, we don't think of victory. We, it's strange that this speaks of the victory of people who died. And that's not the way you and I think. We, we, we think of the good ending as the good guys win. 
But God's saying, I'm doing this and I'm allowing this to happen because I'm purifying a people. There's a lot of people that have been aligned with these forces and, and I'm, I'm just allowing things to take its course to purify a people for me. That's what this whole period has been about from, from going into Babylon and then into Persia and now into Greece. It's been about God refining his people until the end. And so we see the arrogance of Antiochus IV uh, through here. It talks about his relationship to gods. His magnification above gods. We don't have a lot of quotes that it, it talks about him speaking things against the god of gods. And we don't have a lot of quotes. What we do have are, interestingly enough, we have coins that were minted under his reign. And he is pictured with a, 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 not just a crown, but a halo crown, which is a symbol of divinity. And in some of them, even there's like rays of light emanating from this, from this crown. And on the back, there's an uh, inscription on these coins that says, Antiochus Epiphanes, the God Manifest. Big noble words there. <laughs> those are big words. You don't want to be using those words. I tell you that. But we don't have a lot of specific quotes. We do know from history, he was not really a big fan of temples, but the one that he defiled the most and the one he took the greatest vengeance and persecuted the most was that of the Hebrew God. Jehovah. That is known. It's as though that he doesn't even pay attention to the God of his fathers or the desire of women. And I believe he's referencing a, a God of the desire that, that represented. A lot of locations had their favorite gods. There's lots of gods. If you're, you know, the Greeks had lots of favorite gods. Each city had their own patron god. And, and, uh, and even among genders, there were favorite gods. Right? And this is true. Uh, he doesn't um, really care about the God of his fathers. When you think of the great, what is the greatest Greek God? What's, what's the one you think of? Zeus, right? Because what? Because of Antiochus IV. Prior to Antiochus IV, the greatest Greek God was actually what they, would, what they believed was Zeus's son, Apollo. He had way more statues. He had way more cities that he was the patron saint of. This uh, is a, it's, it's a Greek god, but it says that he comes, he, he works in the name of a, of a foreign god. Remember that Antiochus had spent this time in Rome in prison, and he had actually been in, influenced by Roman culture. And in Roman culture, the, their gods were basically the same, but they gave them different names. But in Roman culture, the hierarchy of these were different. The greatest God in Rome, uh, under Roman mythology, was Jupiter, which was the, the, ver the Roman version of Zeus. So when he comes back from Rome and he's marching and he's using his patron God, he's not using Apollo anymore. Apollo, whatever, that's the Greek thing. He's using Jupiter, he's using Zeus. And so from, from Antiochus on, Zeus is kind of considered the greatest Greek God. But it wasn't that... Uh, in antiquity. But it says that he won't honor even the God of women or the desire of women. Uh, women, uh, interestingly enough, had a, had a favorite Greek God. 
you've heard his name. You ever heard someone compared or called an Adonis? That usually means like a really muscular guy, like a Hercules kind of a guy, right? Adonis was like this. He was the Justin Bieber god if Justin Bieber had muscles, right? He was, he was, the, he was the heartthrob god, right? The boy band god, whatever. He was, he was, he was that. And Antiochus had no use for that. He wanted a, a, it calls him a god of fortresses. He wanted, he wanted a god that was just emanated power. That was what symbolized, that was his identity, was raw power. He was a god, loved the god of fortresses, loved a god of just raw, unbridled power. But, the Bible says, at the time of the end, well, what is this time of the end? It's not the end of the world. Remember, we have to remember what this prophecy is given to Daniel for. This prophecy is given to Daniel, well, it's around 535 B.C. And it's about all the things that are going to happen to the Jewish people. They're going to suffer, they've already suffered, at the hands of the Babylonians. That period has come and gone. They're now suffering under the hands of the Persians. Not right at that moment, because a good King Cyrus is, is in power, but they will soon attempt to be exterminated under the Persians. They've been harassed by the Palestinians when they went back to try to rebuild their, uh, their homeland. And now the Greeks are going to harass them and they're just looking for an end of this. When, when is this going to stop? This is hundreds and hundreds of years. When is this going to stop? Actually, we think of this brutal empire that's coming, but for a couple of hundred years, Rome is going to be the first empire to kind of treat them nicely for an extended period of time. You don't think of that. You don't think of Rome as treating anybody nicely, but they did for a while. They had, I mean, they put the Herods on the throne. They, they gave them their own autonomy. They, they let them kind of set their own rules just so long that they stayed within some certain parameters. They were pretty okay. And God says there's going to be an end of this suffering. for You're going to get a couple hundred years of break anyway. And we get to this interesting part. I don't want to go through it in great detail, but verse, from verse 40 to the end of the chapter is not a new series of events. It's a summary. Because as we've seen... Antiochus IV has already been in retreat. He's met what, as we call it, he's met his Waterloo. <laughs> he's, he's reached the point that all dictators reach when they conquer a point and, and then they're forced backwards and they are in retreat from that point. Every dictator in the history of the world has, has reached for the brass ring and reached too far. A lot of you people have no idea what that reference is. That's okay. So, you go through verse 40 through 46 and you'll see the, the references entering the glorious land. We've already talked about the thousands of falling, the people being murdered, the treasury coming back, even references to Libya. We talked about Hannibal already. And retribution, talked about, uh, th there's a couple of new references here that close out Antiochus's reign and life. He says, news from the north and the east um, here at the end. 
news from the north and the east as he, he's in the middle of conquering Palestine and setting up the abomination of desolation. He gets news from Parthia and Armenia, which are to the east and to the north, that they're in rebellion now. See, people are smelling blood in the water. He's in retreat. So he's taking his forces to go put out that rebellion. He leaves his general, figuring his general will do good and put out that rebellion in Jerusalem. That general ends up not doing so well, and the temple's restored in 165. Uh, and so he, he's off putting down the rebellion in Parthia and, and Armenia. And that's mostly okay, and he figures he's going to come back and stamp out Jerusalem once and for all. And he has some sort of attack in his stomach. Was it appendicitis? Was it uh, Who knows what it is? And within a week he's dead. And the Bible says there's nothing to, no one to help him. He stumbles and falls and there's no one to help him. And that's the end of him. That's it. At the point in time, when you think you've got all these great plans, he says, there's going to be no one that can help you. And so I want to apply this. I want to talk about heroism today. Heroes. And what makes a hero? Because he talks about these men that will do great exploits. And there are th- several things about heroes. First of all, and, and I want to draw from the lessons here, heroes see the objective. That's the first thing. There are a lot of objectives. The Maccabees could have fought for a lot of things. They could have fought for their homes. They could have fought for their families. Probably some of them did. Probably used that as motivation. They could have fought for their wealth, their jobs. Their, they could have fought for lots of things that were important to them, their land. But when it came time to draw people out and, and, and rally people against... Antiochus, it was the covenant. This was the objective. We see a world around us that, in Christians, that get angry a lot of, about a lot of things, and a lot of noble things. We get upset about unfairness. We get upset about injustice. We get upset about corruption because we see it all day long. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't get upset about those things. They're noble things, just like your family is a noble thing. Just like there were many noble causes that that people could have gotten upset about, but it was the covenant that got people upset the most. And heroes see the objective, and they keep the objective the objective, and they don't get caught into side issues. It was about the defiling of worship that they were angry. It was the pressure to remain quiet. We saw the people, hey, you just remain quiet. You just, just side with me in this. And there was a group of people who said, no, you've gone too far, and we're not going to. And they did great exploits, as the Bible says. What should offend us 
is the assault on our faith. This week they're burning Bibles in Portland. This should upset us. The second thing about heroes, <clears throat> heroes know who they are. Daniel, we talked, we really are ending up kind of where we, we began at the beginning in January. We talked about Daniel as 15, 16, 17 year old kid that goes, they renamed him. They, they said, uh, your, your name is, is going to be after a, a Babylonian God, and, and you're going to get re-educated. You're going you're to learn our language. You're going to speak our language. You're going to speak our culture. You're, we're going to re-educate you so that you conform to us. And Daniel always was Daniel to him, and so much so that they would say, Daniel, I mean, uh, Belteshazzar, remember that? They got confused as to who he was because his identity, he knew he was, who he was, and that's who he responded to. And he was going to influence them, not the other way around. Well, his last vision now is he's around a 90-year-old man. And what is he seeing 400 years in the future? This effort of Antiochus IV was not simply to, to destroy, but even before he was killing, he was doing something called Greek Hellenization. Hellenization was a trying to, to make the world Greek, and it did. They made the world Greek. Even Romans spoke Greek. <laughs> when, when, when the apostles wrote the, the New Testament, Jewish people wrote the New Testament books in Greek. That's Antiochus IV did that. That's how popular the Greek culture was. But there were people who resisted it. We wonder today, and, and I don't want to be political, but I want to use the illustration of something happening. Have you wondered why the statues that are being torn down are being torn down? I mean, I know I understand why some of them are, but why Abraham Lincoln? You thought that? These people are ignorant. They're not ignorant. I know there's this tendency to think that they don't know what they're doing. They're tearing down the guy that's that's not what's happening. They're doing what Antiochus done. What, what, what every every attempt in history to reculture a people is is that you have to tear it all down. That's what's going on. You have to, if you are going to insert your new culture that you want, you have to tear it all down. That's what's happening. That was what was going on here. I'm just using this by way of illustration. Just so you understand, this isn't a mistake that people are making. So don't, when you hear what statues are being torn down, it's not a mistake. It's deliberate. We talked about how society wants us simply to be in the church and, and not be out in society. That's, that's geographically. But there is something else that's far more destructive that is happening in our culture. Antiochus put a Zeus 
deliberately in the temple because he wanted to change the religious culture. It wasn't just a funny ha-ha thing. He wanted to tear their culture down. He wanted them to be re-educated and speak a different language. And this goes on, and, and, and the church for decades and decades and decades now, in little ways here and there, has learned to re-speak a secular, non-godly language. Let me give you some examples. How many of us have said alcoholism is a disease? Read our Bible. Is it called a disease? Drunkenness is called a sin. Name me a disease that God said is a sin. It's not in there. But we've re-educated and enlightened ourselves. Churches are falling all over themselves to, to try to find a way to incorporate new gender dysphoria theology and find it in the Bible somehow. What the world around us is teaching. Make everything a syndrome. Make everything a disease. Make everything so we can accept it. Speak the language of the world around us. So that there's no morality, so that there's nothing of value left in Christianity. There are no standards left. We get re-educated. We speak the new language. And while we get so upset about all the stuff out there, there's a Zeus in the temple. Heroes, remember who they are. And here's a tough one. Heroes don't always win. This is the tough one. We like our stories with the hero winning at the end. Oh, I mean, it might take a sequel, but... But we want them to win at the end. But the heroes don't always win in the end. I mean, the battle. God's already won. That, that's not what I'm saying. But in this story, we saw people dying. And God says, they're the winners. They died. Yeah, I know. They were purified. That's why they won. They didn't necessarily win that battle. You want to do yourself a favor. Take eight minutes of your time and, and YouTube a guy by the name of John Chapman. A guy who received two medals of honor. You don't usually get two medals of honor in one operation. It's the first ever video recording of a person receiving a medal of honor. Don't worry, it's not graphic. It's a little dot. It's, a, it's a, taken from a drone. He's a black dot without narrating eight minutes of video. He saved 23 men in a losing effort.
in Afghanistan in 2002. His Medal of Honor was for two things in which he, or in two ways in which he allowed 23 people to get to safety, taking 16 bullet wounds and multiple shrapnel wounds in doing so, in a battle where they lost. But he was a hero. I'm not a prophet. It may be that the battle for America's soul is lost. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I don't know if... I know God can if he wishes. But I don't know if God's timing is, is to bring back America to what we thought it was going to be and what we want, the new normal, what the old normal. I don't know any of that. I know that God has something for us to do as a people, and it might not be rescuing America. God may want us just to get people to safety, as many as we can. But as we leave here this morning, I want you to understand that I don't care. It's not up to me to figure out the objective, the final, whatever's going to happen. I just know that God needs heroes.